Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Again, for your generosity, we thank God for our children's church workers who are going to take uh, take our kids on this Sunday morning and uh, and teach them a valuable Bible lesson this morning. Amen. Are all you kids going to be good to my nursery workers? You going to be good to my nursery workers? Okay, and and our Sunday school teachers? (laughs) Thank you. Have a wonderful time. Glory to God. And we're so grateful that you're here this morning. We want to turn in our Bibles today to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that is revolutionary, that can change our lives, that can change the way we see and the way that we live today. So we are approaching uh, this most powerful holiday on the calendar for Christians, Resurrection Sunday, which is coming in just a few weeks. Uh, We've been doing a Bible study plan in the YouVersion app, if you you are been part of that, and if you have, or maybe you want to be part of that, you can see me, we can share that with you. But uh, it's been a really, really good study. I've been uh, trying to keep up the best I can with the daily studies. but I was really inspired about, uh, about the topic that we're going to speak about this morning from that study. Uh, and this is a, a, something that sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion on earth. I believe it was C.S. Lewis. Someone asked him, what is unique about the Christian faith that makes it different from other religions? C.S. Lewis replied, it is one word. It is grace. Grace is what makes the Christian faith unique among other world religions, among other things. But there is a reason why that song is called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. It's not interesting grace. It's not um, cool grace. It is amazing. And it truly is when we begin to contemplate the grace of God that is upon our lives, and that is available to every human being, no matter how sinful. It really is worthy of our amazement. There's a famous author named Philip Yancey, and he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And in that book, he shared a story about a friend who had invited him out for a cup of coffee. This friend, as it turned out, was contemplating leaving his wife after 15 years of marriage. Because he had found someone who was younger and prettier, 
someone that he said made him feel alive. As a Christian, the author knew that his decision would devastate his family, his wife, and would permanently damage his three children. He also knew that the decision to leave his family and to pursue this woman would impact his relationship with God in a way that it would never be the same again. And so even with the force pulling him toward this other woman, even with the knowledge of all of these consequences that were to come, still it was a powerful temptation for this man. So finally, he asks Philip Yancey over a cup of coffee, do you think that God can forgive something as awful as what I'm about to do? What this friend was looking for was assurance. That he would still be accepted by God, still be under the cover of God's grace. This is a very interesting question because I believe many people will contemplate the same thing as they approach the decisions that will lead them away from God. As we battle in temptation that the enemy brings to us. Often we ask those very same questions. God, will you ever accept me again? I believe that there are two destructive heresies this morning that are leading the multitudes to hell. People who sit in church pews all across the world. There are two destructive lies that the enemy tells. The first one says, I'm good enough. I'm good enough the way that I am. God accepts me. How many know that's not true? There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is nobody who deserves God's grace. The second destructive heresy that leads so many to hell is that God will just overlook my sins. That I don't need to change the way I'm living because God is a pushover and I can just live how I want to live. Both of those things are lies. And they are leading many people to the pit of hell. What the Bible teaches about grace is not the easy, slippery kind that says I can live however I want to live and God will still let me into His presence. What grace teaches is a radical concept. It means that we cannot earn God's grace no matter how hard we try. It also means that when we fall and when we fail, that there is available to us a wonderful forgiveness that is beyond our ability to receive in our own. It is an essential part of Christian doctrine. But I want to show you this morning that this truth of the grace of God is more than just a theology. It's more than just something in the abstract. But this grace that is so amazing has the power to transform your decisions today and also the way that you interact with people on a day-to-day basis. So I want to preach a message titled, The Grace for Change. And I want to begin in Romans chapter 5. I'm reading this morning from the New Living Translation. 
follow along with me. We're going to go uh, from the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. A few scriptures here as we read the Word of God. Romans 5, verse 20. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the question. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of this wonderful grace? And the obvious answer, of course not. Since we have died to sin. Everybody say that, died to sin. How can we continue to live in it? Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come by the precious blood of Jesus. I'm so grateful for Your mercy and Your grace. I pray, Lord, that Your people this morning would realize the tremendous weight of this doctrine and this understanding. Lord, that it would, we would apply it to our lives, that it would be implanted in our minds and in our hearts today. God, that You would lead Your people to righteous decisions today. Lord, that we would not continue in our sin, realizing that we are dead to our sin and we are alive in Christ. I'm praying that the grace of God would enable and would strengthen and would purify your church this morning. We give you glory for all that you're going to do in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, Amen. Amen. We're so glad that you're here. This is a message again titled, The Grace for Change. I want to begin by uh, considering with you dead to sin. If we have been shown grace by a holy and a righteous God, it means that we are dead to sin. What we have to be reminded of again and again is our natural state of depravity. You and I, as we come into this world, we are all fallen by nature. We have all been born as descendants of our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And the doctrine of original sin tells us that in Adam, all have sinned. In other words, that those thousands and thousands of years ago, when Adam disobeyed God, and when he disobeyed God's commandment, and when he ate of that fruit, and Adam, Adam and Eve together, they sinned against the Lord, that means that all of the human race after them has followed in that same depravity. There is no special person that is born without sin. How many know that's all of us? Romans 5, verse 12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. This is the doctrine of original sin. We are sinners by birth. Yes, we carry the curse in our blood. That's why the doctrine of virgin birth is so important. Did you know that? Because if Jesus was born the same way that every single one of us was born, then His death does not mean anything more than your death or my death. 
Jesus was not born the same way as you or me. Jesus was born through the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she found herself pregnant. That means that Jesus did not carry the same blood like you carry, like I carry, like the rest of the human race carries. That's why His death is so much more meaningful. He carried the very blood of God in His veins, untainted by this original sin. But not only are we sinners by birth, the Bible declares that we are also sinners by choice. And you, if you can be honest for a moment in your own heart, that you will know that not only have you inherited sin from past ancestors, you have also, time and again, chosen to sin, haven't you? That you knew the difference between right and wrong. That your conscience convicted you. That the Holy Spirit began to steer you and say, you better not do that. And you still do it. Or when the Holy Spirit says, ah, you better quit doing that. Or you should go on and do that. This is something you need to do. This is something you must do. You're going to be obedient to God. And what do we do? A sin of omission. It means we don't do what God has called us to do. And so both by birth and by choice, we have all entered into the arena of rebellion against God. Children. We see it in children, don't we? It's obvious. Children are not born of pure, uh, wonderful, obedient, righteous, and holy, are they? <laughs> Your little three-year-old is a terrorist. And we do not negotiate with terrorists. Who taught them to be terrorists anyway? It is in the very nature of humanity. But... Aren't you glad this morning that when you are saved, the Bible declares a miracle that takes place? That miracle, what Jesus described of being born again. All of us are born into sin. We're born into rebellion against God. But when we come to the cross, when we humble ourselves, when we ask God to forgive us, what the Bible says is that you and I are born again. It is a new nature a new birth, a new life. In the same way that when a baby comes out of a mother's womb, before that baby was in darkness. That baby was in a constricted, tight spot. That baby was unable to see or to hear well. That baby was, in a, uh, was, 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 was unable to do all the things that we like to do in life. And, yet, and then when the baby is born, all of a sudden can breathe air for the first time can make noise for the first time, can see for the first time the world around them, all of a sudden they're able to make connections between mother and father, brothers and sisters for the first time, right? It's a radical transformation from the womb to life outside the womb. Now in the same way, when Jesus said that getting saved is like being born again, how many can remember when you first got saved? And you began to realize how different life is after you've, you've known Jesus. Knowing Jesus is like being born again. It's a whole new life. It's a whole new set of principles. It's a whole new experience. All of a sudden, we have care and concern for a church body. How come I care about all you people? 
because God made me to do that through my second birth. How come I don't want to sin anymore like I used to? Well, it's part of the new nature. Part of God's nature that He imparted to me as a new believer. This is what it's like to be born again. And if you're not born again, by the way, I didn't mention that coming to church and getting religious. That's not what it is. Being born again is a new nature. Just because you find yourself in church this morning doesn't automatically mean that you're born again. Just the same way going to McDonald's doesn't make you a cheeseburger. The fact of salvation says in our Scripture that when we are born again, the moment of our salvation, this is true about you and true about me. And I want you to capture this this morning. When you are saved, you become dead to the power of sin. Now that is something that so many Christians struggle with. And truly, we do have struggles in our flesh. The Apostle Paul described the struggle that exists between the flesh and the Spirit. How often we, like Paul, want to cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. As long as we are in this world and connected to this flesh and this bone, there will be a constant struggle. And yet, even acknowledging that struggle, the very next chapter, Paul makes this declaration that we must accept as truth. You are dead to sin. Look again at chapter 6, verse 2. The question was, shall we then continue in our sin? Shall we then continue in our sins because we know how wonderful grace, God's grace is? And the answer that Paul gave ought to blow your mind. He says, certainly we should not continue in our sin. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Everybody say the word died. Let me ask you, is that future tense? Present tense? It is past tense, isn't it? We who died to our sins. When did that happen? Not today. It happened before. In other words, Paul is saying that we who are of the light, we who have been born again, we are called the church. We are called children of God. We are new creations in Christ. And he says, if that's true about you, then you have already died to your sin. Whether that happened yesterday or whether that happened 50 years ago, you have died to your sin. That's true at this moment. <laughs> now, you might be saying, well, pastor, then how come I could keep sinning? <laughs> That's a very good question. And we're going to approach that in just a moment. If we have died to sin, then why is it that we still struggle? Why is it that 1 John chapter 1? John, he makes a... Uh, he, I love the Apostle John, and he says in... Chapter 1 of, of his epistle, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say, verse 10, that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, in other words, being dead to sin doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be completely free from falling into sin. But here's what I believe 
what it means. Here's where I believe that this can really make a difference in our lives. What it means is that being dead to sin is that you no longer enjoy it. (laughs) Your nature has changed. Sin is no longer pleasurable to you. Even the Bible says that there is pleasure in sin for a season, for a moment. If If sin was not pleasurable, then no one would do it because of the terrible consequences that always play out. Sin causes us to be separated from God. Sin causes us to hurt other people. Sin causes us to fall into depression. Sin, all of these bad consequences, then why do people do it? Because there's pleasure in it for a moment. But what I'm saying to you this morning is that this fact, this truth of being dead to our sin is a present reality in every believer here And while it is true spiritually, it is not fully yet complete physically. That's why we still have a struggle of flesh. But here's what it means to be dead to sin. I don't even have to ask the question because I already know the answer. You have all known what it feels like to struggle and to falter, even as a Christian. Right? You know what it feels like. Because when you enter into that temptation and that sin, what happens is that just like before we were saved, there are desperate consequences. But the thing that's different is with a new nature, the Spirit of God is in you and He is uh, continuing, continuing to influence you against sin. It means being dead to sin, you do not enjoy it. There's no joy in it. There is no peace. There is no satisfaction. Mick Jagger's been singing it for 50 years. I can't get no. That's what it means. The Spirit of God being dead to sin, it means that we no longer enjoy it as it ought to be. And this is truly a sign, beloved, that you are right with God, that we ought to be thankful for. (laughs) What's true physically has not yet been completed. So verse 3 goes on to say in our scripture, Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, that we joined Him in His death? Let me ask you, is death a temporary condition? It's very permanent, isn't it? Except for Jesus who came back three days later. In other words, that when Jesus' flesh died on the cross, that we all entered in with him in that death. And in the same way that Christ was risen from the dead, that that body has been changed. The body that Jesus has today has the same DNA, right? He still has the scars in his hands and in his side. But his new body that he received from God, the resurrected body, is a body that will live forever. Different than the one before. I want to tell you that in Christ, as a new creation in Him, that we have the preview, the sneak preview of the new body. Can I tell you, the same way that God resurrected Jesus from the dead, the same thing that we are celebrating on Resurrection Day in a few weeks, is going to be experienced by you, and by me. One day, the Bible says that we will all receive a new resurrected body. A body that doesn't get sick. A body that doesn't die. 
a body that, that, uh, that is created fully to glorify God. A body that doesn't want to sin anymore. Won't that be nice? A body that wants to live every day in the will of God. Can I tell you, at about 7 a.m., your body doesn't want to live for God. Right? Your body wants to worship at the Church of the St. Mattress. Right, Mom? But one day, when the resurrection is completed, you'll have a body as well as a spirit that wants to serve God fully and completely. So the struggle now is that while we have been spiritually reborn, we have not yet been physically reborn. Are you catching what I'm saying? So that's why the Bible says, that's why Paul says that the the, the spirit striveth against the flesh. We know, verse 6 goes on, he says, We know that our own old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. The way I like to illustrate this for, for people is in this way. Imagine a tree. In our neighborhood, I was just driving yesterday and I... I I noticed, I've seen it a hundred times already, but I noticed this tree that's in our neighborhood. It's right across the street from a little elementary school. And I'm driving by it and I notice, man, this tree is so huge. I mean, it's got a, a trunk that's probably 10 feet wide. Huge oak tree or something. And so I'm driving by and I'm looking at it and it's so tall. It's got to be 100 feet tall. And also 100 feet wide. And I'm looking at that tree. And I notice that it's growing right along a fence line. Have you ever seen those? You know, maybe before when it was a younger tree, it didn't affect the fence at all. But as it grew and grew, and and the people who lived in that house uh, on the other side, they have trimmed the bottom of their fence, you know, to go around the base of that tree. So, so, uh, and I'm just looking at that. What a massive, and I'm thinking to myself, Boy, it would be horrible if a hurricane blew through and that thing fell on that house. Wouldn't that be terrible? And then I was thinking, man, what a, what a job it would be to try to take this tree down. Could you imagine somebody gave you that job? I want you to chop down this, this 100-year-old oak tree that's 10 feet wide. How would you even get started? Right? I mean, you would need tools, you would need trucks, you would need men, you would need ropes, you would need ladders. You, it would be a huge undertaking. Yes? Okay, now here's what I want you to imagine. When you were born into this life, there was a tree that was planted in your soul, the tree of sin. It started off small. As you grew, that tree continued to grow along with you. Some of us, that tree got pretty massive. The tree in our soul, the tree of sin, that tree began to branch out into every aspect of our lives, every decision that we made, every relationship that we have. Those trees of sin in our lives, I want to tell you, they thrive and through seasons they produce fruit. The branches begin to go out into every arena of our lives, every decision that we make, right? You know what I'm talking about? The tree of sin. When we get saved, though, you know what Jesus does? Jesus gets the job of removing the tree of sin from our lives. But just imagine that huge oak tree. Let's imagine a guy with a buzzsaw. So salvation, when we come and we say, God, there's this massive tree in my backyard. 
I need to get it out of here. So the process begins. And what Jesus does at salvation is the tree falls down. But if you observe that tree, guess what? It still has branches. It still has leaves. It still has fruit. It still looks like it's alive, doesn't it? The difference is it has been cut off from the root system. What I'm telling you, church, this morning is that in your life, you might still feel like a sinner, but you are dead to your sins. You might still feel the branches in your life, but I want to tell you this, the branches have stopped growing. The leaves have stopped budding. The fruit has stopped dropping. Now it is up to you and it is up to me to begin the process of tree removal. The power of that tree has been cut off. We have died to our sins. But sometimes we still feel like sinners. And this is why. Now, let's talk about grace for a moment. What does grace change exactly? Grace changes the spiritual law that we live under. It changes how we think about ourselves. John Owens was a great theologian in the Puritan movement, and he wrote that his biggest challenge as a pastor was to persuade unbelievers that they were slaves to sin and was to persuade Christians that they are dead to sin. Did you hear that? The biggest challenge of any pastor is to persuade unbelievers that they are still slaves to their sin and to persuade Christians that they are dead to sin. If you could be persuaded of that this morning, that you are already dead to your sins, can I tell you, that will change your life. If you would carry that with you today, then temptation would no longer have power in your life. No, I'm already dead to sin. I don't need to do that. The question that Paul poses in our scripture is this, in verse 3, and I want you to mark it. The question is this, have you forgotten? See that? Chapter 6, verse 3. Have you forgotten that you are dead to sin? Yes, we have. That is our greatest struggle. As new believers, we, we understood it. I'm dead to my sins now, but... The problem in our Christian life as we live, as we live in this fallen world and as wicked things happen around us, we begin to forget, oh yeah, that tree has already fallen down. It's already lost its power. I want you to notice as you go through Romans chapter 6 that the entire chapter, let me just take the time here as we begin to shut this thing down and come in for a landing. Romans chapter 6. I want to read with you, once again, the first 10 verses. Stick with me. I I wonder if you could all turn with me there for just a moment. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall he who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know... Have you forgotten that many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism unto death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
That's the Christian life. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. The death that He died, He died once. He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Now, taking all of that into consideration, Paul begins to apply this to our lives. What does this mean? How should we live? It's in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourself. I mentioned this a few weeks ago in a sermon. But you know what it means to reckon, right? I reckon. People in the South know what it means. To reckon your the word in the in the Greek here is the word logizomai. It means a logical conclusion. It means a decision of your mind. What decision are we supposed to be making? Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Did you hear that? That's a decision. That is not something that automatically happens in the life of every believer. Some believers struggle in their sin because they do not come to this logical conclusion. They say to themselves, I am struggling too much with my sin. I'm just going to give in. The devil is pestering me so often. I'm just going to let him yank the chain back into my slavery. But the thing that will change your life right now is if you would reckon yourself. Make the logical conclusion that you are dead to sin. That you are dead to sin. Verse 2, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Now, I want to tell you, what is the evidence of this reckoning? What is the actual produce? What is the actual product of being dead to sin? It's in that same scripture. Romans 6, verse 11. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alive to God. See, the problem is that you can't be both. You can't be dead to sin without being alive to God. I'm sorry, you must be both. You can't only be one or the other. So being dead to sin means being alive to God. This is the conclusion. Sin has consequences in life. But grace has the ability to make us alive in Him. How has God changed you? I can tell if God has changed you. People who have become alive to God. So some people come into the, come into the church and you know, have, a, uh, have a spiritual experience. I see people sometimes weeping tears at the altar, and we don't deny that God moves in the emotions of, of people. But I want to tell you that an emotional response to God is not enough. Just coming to an altar and weeping tears and repenting of sins, if true repentance has taken place, it means that we are dead to sin, 
we have already died to sin, and it means that we've become alive in Christ. And so that means that we're going to live lives that glory, glorify and honor God. It means that Christians can't be living together in, in uh, unmarried relationships. It means that Christians cannot continue to be addicted to abuse and uh, abusive chemicals, including prescription drugs. Huge problem in our world today. It means that Christians cannot continue to entertain a pornography addiction. It means that Christians cannot just blow people off and rip people off in the house of God. It doesn't work. It means that if I'm dead to my flesh and I'm alive to God, it means that every decision I make should bring greater glory to God. And this is where the grace of God applies. Because nobody is perfect in this pursuit. Nobody has sprouted our angel wings yet. Nobody has a halo around your head this morning. Nobody here, including me, claims to be perfect. What we claim to be is covered by the grace of God so that we can live lives of grace. And if we've been shown grace by God, then you know what else it means? It means that we can show grace to people who have hurt you and to stubborn people like you. That's how grace changes us for the better. It never gives you an excuse to sin. It never gives you the license to live the way that you, however you want to live. It means, going back to Philip Yancey, this author, as he sat across the table from that friend who was about to enter into a terrible, terrible decision. The answer that he gave to this man, he said, can God forgive you? Of course God can forgive you. You know the Bible. Forgiveness is not our problem. Forgiveness is our problem, rather. It is not God's problem. But the problem truly is, if you make a, uh, a decision like this, to go through and commit a sin like this, it will distance you from God. It will distance you from everyone else. There's no guarantee that you'll ever come back. Who's to say that after the deed is done, that you even want forgiveness? You ask me about forgiveness now, but would you want it later? if it means you'd have to repent. Can God forgive us? Yes, He can. But are you the kind of person that wants God's forgiveness? That's a completely different question. The grace of God, again, does not give us an excuse or a license to sin, but what it does do is it empowers us to live lives of freedom in Christ. So this morning, I'm not here to to beat up or to uh, do any more than the Holy Spirit has already done. I believe the Holy Spirit is very good at convicting us, right? That the Holy Spirit, if there's sin at work in your life today, if there is persistent or ongoing or habitual sins happening in your life, that I as a preacher, I don't have to do much except remind you about the Holy Spirit who already is very good at convicting you. 
But what I must do is to remind you as well that there is grace available for those who are truly repentant. For those who will say, God, God, I need your mercy and your grace. Empower me so that I can then show grace to others. And that is the grace for change. God gives us his grace not just so that we can feel that we can live however we want to live. The grace of God is so that we can change. So that day by day we can carry another another branch out of the backyard. Another branch. And little by little we can become day by day more and more into the image of Christ. And that is the goal for our lives. Let's bow our heads. And close our eyes as we bring this service to a close. And as we consider these wonderful truths from the Word of God, the reason that God shows you grace is not so you can keep living however you want. It's not because God doesn't care about your sins. The Bible says that sin is what put Christ on the cross. Your sin and my sin. And to minimize sin is to minimize the death of Jesus. It is to count his blood as worthless. But I believe today that the blood of Jesus is still powerful. It's still powerful to forgive sin. And you've come into this church service today, and maybe it is that you are living in that sin. Maybe it is today that you know that you're living in disobedience to a holy God. A holy God who will bring condemnation against all sin. God is righteous. He is holy. In His holiness, He is unapproachable. If we were to experience the holiness of God today, none of us would survive. His holiness is heavy and powerful. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vbph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website, vbph.org, and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.